You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Qatar accuses the UAE of hacking and vows legal retribution. The UAE says it didn't do it. Warnings about vulnerabilities in commonly used IoT code. The FBI warns of risks inherent in Internet-connected toys. And people really, really don't read those EULAs. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, July 18, 2017. Qatar continues to accuse the United Arab Emirates of hacking Qatar News Agency and other targets to plan disinformation discreditable to Qatar's government. Early on May 24th, quotation praising both Hamas and Iran, and by some reports Israel as well, appeared on various social media accounts and news sites associated with Qatar's government. They were attributed to the emir of Qatar. The remarks promptly led to a diplomatic rupture between Qatar and other Gulf states, particularly the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain, who were prepared to accept them at face value in spite of Qatar's protestations that it had been hacked. Other minor incidents soon thereafter affected sites in Bahrain and at least one diplomatic email account in the UAE. The U.S. FBI, which assisted Qatar's investigation of the incident, said in late May that they believed Russian threat actors were behind the disinformation campaign. But a report this Sunday in the Washington Post quoted anonymous members of the U.S. intelligence community as attributing the cyber attacks to the UAE, and Qatar's official representatives have run with that story. The Emirates continue to deny involvement, and they're not even entirely buying that the hacking involved disinformation at all. They say the report of Emirati involvement that appeared in the Post is flatly false, and that if you look at past statements by Qatar's rulers, well, they're consistent with what the alleged hackers published. There have long been tensions between Qatar and its neighbors, allies, and brethren in the Gulf. Many of those tensions are associated with Qatar's relatively warm relations with the Muslim Brotherhood. For an indication of how wire-taught such tensions are, consider that a government has gone on record with charges of criminality against a neighbor that are founded on an anonymously sourced story in an American newspaper. Here in the U.S., it's summertime, and for a lot of kids, that means summer camp. But it's not just archery, canoeing, and ghost stories around the fire. The NSA partners with educational institutions across the country, sponsoring summer camps through their Gen Cyber program. Tina Ladabush is the program manager for Gen Cyber. There's an extreme shortage of qualified cybersecurity professionals. Um, so we thought that it would be important to generate a pipeline of individuals entering into the field. And we wanted to do that and reach students prior to entering college. So that's why the Gen Cyber program was created for the K through 12 student population. And so give me an overview. What kind of things does the Gen Cyber program offer? The Gen Cyber 
program is sponsored by the National Security Agency and the National Science Foundation. And what we do is we offer grants to universities to hold summer camps for K through 12 students and teachers. And we're introducing them to cybersecurity. We're trying to generate an interest in cybersecurity. We provide them with instruction on safe online behavior, cybersecurity uh, topics. We introduce them to secure programming and cybersecurity first principles. Those are the types of things that are involved in the summer camp. And why is it so important to reach these young women before they reach college age? There are studies out there that show that students in the uh, late elementary, middle school age, especially girls, develop an interest in certain topics. And we want to make sure that they are exposed to these types of topics early on before they hit college so they don't stray away into another category, another subject area. We want to show them that they can actually be involved in cybersecurity. So the program's been running for a couple of years now. What's the feedback been so far? The feedback has been amazing, very positive. We have a lot of interest that's been generated throughout the couple of years. The program has grown significantly. 2014, we had eight camps. We increased to 43. Last year, we had 120 camps. And this year, we're going to have 131 camps. And ultimately, how will you measure success? Currently, it's a little too early to measure success because the program is so new. However, in the future, we hope to be able to see the students entering into college and majoring in cybersecurity subject areas and also then entering the workforce because we want to bridge that gap in between the number of qualified cybersecurity professionals that are needed in the workforce and those that are entering in the field. What does a typical day look like for someone who engages with this program? Each camp is unique within itself. We provide overarching guidance to each one of the institutions for the camp, of what the camp curriculum should look like. And pretty much that is just to introduce cybersecurity to, to the participants, whether they be students or teachers, introduce safe online behavior to them, um, provide teaching methods and techniques to the teachers during the teacher camp, and to make sure there's hands-on interactive activities during the camp. We don't want the students just sitting in front of a computer. We want them to be energized, and we find that hands-on engaging, learner-centered activities is extremely effective. That's Tina Latabush from NSA's Gen Cyber Program. You can find out more about the program and find a camp near you at their website. That's gen-cyber.com. If you'll forgive a bit of self-promotion, we've been asked, so what do I get for becoming a Producer Circle patron of the CyberWire? Well, unlike that membership in the Shadow Brokers Exploit of the Month Club you might have been considering, not that we'd necessarily recommend signing up for that club, wealthy elite, your support of the CyberWire gets you more than an eternal blue tote bag or a Guccifer 2.0 bobblehead or a DVD of Ed Snowden's greatest hits. The Producers Circle now receives exclusive access to our new quarterly report. If you'd like to see a sample, go to thecyberwire.com slash issues and check it out. And thanks to all the patrons who've been so generous in their support of the CyberWire. Returning to hacking, NotPetya continues to reverberate in the shipping and logistics sector, even after the malware attack itself has been contained and remediated. Delays in receipt of various shipments are being ascribed to the attack. NotPetya's effect on FedEx seems at the very least to have put the brakes on the shipping company's full integration of its TNT acquisition. This is another reason to consider the role cyber risk assessment necessarily plays in M&A due diligence and how difficult that assessment can prove to be. 
Other insurance companies have experienced material consequences as well, which gives added point to insurance giant Lloyd's' assessment that a major cyber attack could inflict worldwide damages in the range of over $53 billion to over $121 billion. Axis Communications patched an issue Senrio researchers found with Axis high-end and widely used security cameras. Axis deserves some credit here because they're early to the patching. The flaw, Devil's Ivy, is found in the widely used open-source code GSOAP. The problem is widespread and extends far beyond Axis. The vulnerability is likely to endure, given the notoriously low rates at which IoT devices are patched. Other IoT issues surface in children's toys. The FBI warns that it's probably not a good idea to give your young sons and daughters Internet-connected toys. The Bureau's concerns are centered for the most part on the kinds of data such toys collect pictures, voices, names, geolocation, and so forth. The information is for the most part collected innocently, but what's collected can be compromised and it's not easy to undo the damage of a breach. It's also unlikely you'll ever patch a talking kukla. If it's unlikely to happen with security cameras, it's less likely to happen with a much-loved and chewed-over teddy bear. Security firm Plixer's Michael Patterson communicated a familiar call for regulation to us in response to news of this warning. He said, quote, expecting consumers to do their homework before making an Internet-connected toy purchase isn't going to happen. He argues there ought to be a law. If the government can require nutrition labels on packaged food, why not collection labels on connected devices? And he adds that those very one-sided end-user license agreements, the EULAs that you never read, are insufficient to protect privacy. And speaking of EULAs, free Wi-Fi provider Purple conducted an experiment that turned out about as one might expect. They embedded clauses in their EULA giving them the right to assign community service to users. Such service included cleansing local parks of animal waste, providing hugs to stray cats and dogs, manually relieving sewer blockages, cleaning portable lavatories at local festivals and events, painting snail shells to brighten up their existence, and scraping chewing gum off the streets. More than 22,000 users cheerfully clicked through. One, count them, one person actually read and declined the EULA. We'd ask our community outreach staff for advice, but for some reason they're down the hall in the conference room doing something with snails and paintbrushes. Weird, huh? And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, 
Banta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Marcus Roshecker. He's the Cybersecurity Program Manager at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Uh, Marcus, we saw a story come by about Facebook and that they were found to have broken some data privacy laws in several European countries. Uh, and actually, they're being investigated in a couple more. What's going on here? This seems to be a kind of a story that we hear again and again. We know generally that Europe has uh, very strict privacy laws. And uh, in this case, certain European countries are investigating Facebook for violating uh, certain privacy laws within those countries. Facebook is arguing that it doesn't necessarily have to comply with with some of these uh, national laws because really they argue that their presence in Europe is located and specific to Ireland and that they have to follow Ireland law because their main office is uh, located in Dublin. There's certainly going to be a lot of debate about that, uh, especially because Facebook does, of course, have some presence in in a lot of the other European countries, a physical presence in a lot of these other European countries. But the fact of the matter is right now, the fines for violating some of these privacy laws are relatively low, especially for a company such as uh, Facebook, which has about $30 billion in revenue uh, per year. Um, But Europe is looking to change that. The fines for violating some of these privacy laws will go up in the future. Uh, in fact, uh, next year, May 2018, we'll see the the initiation of the European General Data Protection Regulation. That's going to make it a lot more costly if a company is found to violate uh, pr- data privacy laws, uh, European data privacy laws, which will certainly um, give a company that's operating in, in these countries a lot more Uh, reason to look at their privacy uh, policies and their practices to make sure that they're in compliance. It's an interesting argument from Facebook's point of view. I mean, if you compare it, it's it's obviously not a direct comparison, but I think of like a pharmaceutical company, you know, if their factory was in Dublin, Ireland, that wouldn't mean that uh, they didn't have to comply with the uh, drug safety rules in Germany or France or any other country where they sold their product. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. you know, we, we always see this kind of uh, uh, fundamental debate when it comes to online services and, and online presence and whether or not that can be uh, completely uh, equated to a physical presence. Uh, some are, argue that it's not the same thing and others certainly argue that it is. So um, there's a lot of room there for legal analysis and, uh, you know, we'll have to see how things develop. All right. Marcus Roshecker, thanks for joining us. Struggling to secure on-prem apps with modern identity? Don't worry, you're not alone. Join industry leaders from Fortune 500 organizations to secure your apps on any cloud with any IDP, regardless of your environment's complexity. Meet Strata's identity orchestration platform, Mavericks. Say goodbye to the headaches of app refactoring and legacy tech debt. 
With identity orchestration, you can modernize legacy apps to use MFA or passwordless authentication in a few weeks, migrate from one IDP to another, and so much more without changing the app. No matter your IAM use case, Strata extends the value of your current identity investments. And the best part? You can try it for free today. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire to share your biggest identity challenge, and they'll hook you up with a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Don't miss out. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire. That's strata.io slash cyberwire. And that's The Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.